Welcome to another edition of Governed by God, a discussion of law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. I'm your host, Eric Lupold, and I thank you for joining me this morning. Uh, I ask that you please uh, share the show, like the show, give the thumbs up, stars, reviews, uh, send it to a friend, post it on Facebook, Twitter, all those wonderful things. Uh, all of that helps to uh, get the uh, show out to more to more folks. Um, for those of you who want to support me, uh, and I greatly appreciate those who do, uh, thank you for your support, your monthly support. You can go to patreon.com, search for Governed by God, and uh, become a patron there. All right, so we're going to begin our day today with a law of the day. And this is kind of a two-part uh, parallel laws, if you will. We have Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, and we have Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. Deuteronomy 22, 5 says this, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And then Exodus twenty-three nineteen says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, at first glance, they might seem like completely unrelated passages, but they are related. But I want to first talk about the one regarding um, basically wearing other clothing of the opposite gender. So the first law speaks of a woman wearing men's clothing, um, but it's not only about cross-dressing. You see, when you look at the Hebrew words there, the primary or the general reference is to that of a warrior's equipment or the equipment that a that a man would wear in combat it is true that cross-dressing was an issue uh, some of the pagan nations did engage in uh, ritual sexual behavior that involved um, male prostitutes dressing as women now there is also the issue though of women taking the role of a warrior and that is applicable in this text that is relevant to this text um, the idea is that a man should not wear a woman's cloak okay so and at the same time a woman should not put on a man's equipment or a warrior's equipment and the connection to the second law that I mentioned Exodus 23:19, regarding the boiling of a goat in its mother's milk is seen in this so the practice of boiling goats uh, in their mother's milk was a religious practice. It was done by the pagan nations in Canaan. But the issue is not that you would eat a goat. Nothing is wrong with eating a baby goat. That a goat is a clean animal uh, in accordance with Mosaic law. And there's nothing wrong with boiling milk or drinking milk from a goat. Not a problem with that at all. The issue is found in the very sick irony that was taking place in that action. Because what they were doing is they were turning an instrument of life, mother's milk, into an instrument of death. They were using that mother's milk to kill her own baby. And this was an overturning and a mockery of God's created order and against and it stood against God's design. Now, because we know that death itself is a result of the fall, but to take something that is life-giving and to turn it into death-dealing is a deeply wicked and abominable act. 
So the reason why these two laws are very much connected is because putting women into combat, uh, giving them the warrior's equipment, is to turn an instrument of life into an instrument of death. Now, I know that many people will criticize me for that, uh, but they need to take it up with God's word. I'm just I'm just sharing what I've seen in the text here, what the text says. And I know that there are many who would advocate that women should be allowed in combat because, right, we want equality, right? Equality, equality, equality. It's all about equality. But the problem here is the assumption. The assumption of equality, or at least the way the word is being used, is that we as society believe in equality in every category, in all aspects. And that's just not true. The Bible doesn't preach that. Uh, Nature doesn't teach that. And our founding fathers didn't believe it either. So to suggest that any group of people, any two people, are perfectly equal is, is silly. Everyone differs in areas. We differ in health, size, looks, intelligence, communication skills, talents, and even our, our desires and our likes. All those things are not equal. Um, the only equality that I see in Scripture is that we are equally made in God's image and that we are equally spiritually dead in our sins and equally in need of a Savior. And perhaps the greatest equality is that if we are in Christ, we are equally redeemed, equally saved in him. You know, we see this in in Galatians where, um, you know, in in Christ there is neither uh, slave nor free, uh, Jew or Gentile, male male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. The idea being that uh, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and we are equally uh, in need of a Savior, and we, if we are saved, are equally redeemed and are one of his people. But God does not make us equal in our roles and our functions. I mean, no one would argue that a running back is less of a person simply because he is not a quarterback. Similarly, no one would argue that a combat medic is less of a person than a sniper. Their roles are different, and this is a good thing. We want different roles. I mean, we certainly see this example in Scripture with the analogy of the body of Christ. Paul talks about um, the eye being envious that it's not an ear, and how silly that is. And um, if everyone were ears, where would the eyes be? And if everyone were, were eyes, where would the ears be? And there, that there's a place for um, all of God's people in the body, and each one has a different role and function. And yes, some might seem more glorious or get more attention than others, but that doesn't make them less important or less valuable. Now, sadly, I believe that in the name of equality, so a veneer of something good, in the name of equality, women have actually been placed in a role that God did not design them for. And in some, yes, and some of them can physically do the job. There are women out there who are stronger than me. There are women who are stronger than many men. Okay? And especially the help of technology. You see, in the ancient world, uh, wars were fought with soldiers, infantry, on the ground, having to carry heavy um, equipment, heavy armor, swords, um, bows, arrows, spears, all those things, right? 
Now, today, we have technology to help us. We have better equipment. We have tanks and airplanes, and all those things can do much of the hard work that basically used to require just muscle strength. And so now, women are more able physically to do the job, but it was never an issue. See, the issue is never one of physicality or capabilities. The issue is one of design and purpose. Again, does God have the right to determine um, how his design is supposed to function? Now, uh, you know, you could use a screwdriver to do the job of a hammer, and perhaps one out of ten times it works just fine. But just because it works that one time doesn't mean that the screwdriver was designed to hammer things. It also does not mean that the screwdriver is less valuable or less important than the hammer. Again, they have different jobs. They have different roles. And that's perfectly fine. So in a very twisted irony, our culture claims to love women and want what is best for them by encouraging them to go into harm's way, by sending them into harm's way in combat. And what we're doing is we're taking those who are designed to nurture life and we're turning them into instruments of death. And sadly, we see this in our culture as entertainment. We have this very odd fetish with with uh, lethal women, with beautiful, sexy, attractive women who can kill and engage in mortal combat and defeat uh, much stronger, larger uh, men. Now, we see this in things like the Black Widow and and other movies and TV shows, uh, kind of that 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 lethal woman, that dangerous and deadly woman. She's also very beautiful and very desirous, and it's a twisted it's a twisted fetish and it's a twisted form of beauty, and it's uh, certainly um, I, I would say it's it's playing right into the abomination in the eyes of the Lord, and you know now we have women engaged in mixed martial arts and competitions on TV and we're watching women beat each other up. I mean, I think watching anybody beat each other up is probably not a good thing and and kind of is a throwback to the bloodthirsty Romans and their desire to be in the Colosseum and to see bloodshed. But um, how much more worse is it when we want to watch women uh, assault each other? So the thing is, though, is that we're also a very hypocritical culture because I wonder how many husbands out there um, are happy to send their wives downstairs to check out that mysterious noise, you know, in the middle of the night. You know, when when you hear the bump in the night, do equal opportunity and say, well, tonight's your turn, honey. You go down there. I don't think many of our wives would appreciate that. And I don't think many husbands actually advocate for that. And even though there's always exceptions, right? Like maybe the husband's in a wheelchair and can't do anything. Okay, but that doesn't negate God's design. The the exceptions to the rule don't negate the rule. The the exceptions or the result of the fall, uh, whether it's you know sickness, disease, brokenness, or whatnot, doesn't negate um, God's design. Now, some might throw the counterexample at me of Deborah in Judges four. For those of you who don't remember, Deborah was ordained a judge by God in the uh, land of Israel. This is before the monarchy. Um, she contributes towards the victory that is um, that Israel experiences against their oppressors. And she does this with the commander named Barak. Now, the situation in Judges 4, I don't think, is actually 
defending or defensible or favorable towards the argument for women in combat. This is not a regular thing that happens in Judges 4. This is actually, I would say, a form of judgment against Israel. And here's why. When Deborah speaks to Barak and informs him that the Lord has said that he needs to go and fight, basically go and fight the enemies of Israel, he complains. And he says that he will not go unless she goes with him. And that's in Judges chapter 4, verse 8. But verse 9 is very interesting because she says this. She says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. So that's interesting that Barak is showing cowardice, a, a lack of trust. Deborah has simply communicated to him, God wants you to do this. God has commanded you to go do this. And, and he is unsure. He is nervous about it. And so he does not want to go without her with him. He needs that extra comfort, if you will. Um, he's just not trusting. And she basically says that the path you're going on will not lead to your glory. And that's, that's her response. She'll go with him, certainly, but it's not going to go well uh, for him. And it's not, it's not a mark of, of, uh, of glory for him. It's, it's actually a mark of shame that, that, that they're reduced to this situation. And, of course, Brock goes. She goes with him. Nothing suggests that she fights with him. He's the one that sends the troops in. She's a prophetess and a judge in this sense. But uh, the idea being in all of this is that what, what Israel is experiencing is not a good situation. It is not good that we're at the point where the women are commanding and leading the men, and the men are cowards and won't do it. Um, they won't do what they're supposed to do in the eyes of the Lord. And later on in Scripture, there is an, a pretty clear example, I would say, where we see that the rise of, 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 of women taking over the leadership of men and children taking over um, levels of importance and leadership is a sign of judgment. Because quite simply, the failure of men to do their job and to step up as leaders and protectors, it results in women having to do it for them. Okay, But that's a judgment. That's not a good thing. That is not God's uh, intention or design. And in, in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12, God says this. He says, My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. So we see there, um, again, an overturning of God's order. He set up a way that things are supposed to function, and it's a woe. It's a judgment when children are oppressing them. So children are in charge. Children are commanding. Um, children are, are leading the way, and women are ruling over the men. The men are basically just abdicating their roles. They have, they have essentially quit as leaders, and that's not a good thing, God says. All right, so at the end of the day, we need to take God's law seriously, um, and God is very serious about turning instruments of life into instruments of death and uh, women in combat and men um, dressing up as women and becoming effeminate. This is all uh, not the way God designed things to be. So moving on in our study of Lex Rex, we are in chapter 16. And again, each chapter is a question that we will go through and summarize. Um, and again, I hope that you would pick up this book and look through it. Uh, it's very helpful. But chapter 16 uh, is this question. 
is the government the only supreme and final interpreter of the law? That's a good question, right? So um, who gets to decide what the law means? Rutherford, the author, already talked about, you know, is the king the only one who makes law? Or is he the final determiner of law? But now the question is, is the ruler the only interpreter of the law? Not making of the law, but interpreting the law. Now, he argues no. Um, the ruler can't claim to be the only interpreter of the law, or else why would we even bother having lesser magistrates and judges? Because you know they would just they would just appeal to the king, say, King, tell us what this means, tell us what this means. Um, every judge is accountable to God, ultimately. And Rutherford gives an example of Caesar and Pilate. It's a theoretical example. He says, if Caesar told Pilate that the law demands the death of Jesus, Pilate might not reach the same conclusion in good conscience. So he uses that example to to basically show that it, it becomes a problem if you say that the highest ruler has the final interpretation of the law. If that's the case, then there can never be a situation where a subordinate would ever question a decision or an interpretation. There's basically no check to the ruler's power. So even if even if the ruler doesn't make the law, if the ruler is the final interpreter of the law, then the ruler can interpret it however he wants to. And no one that's underneath the ruler may ever challenge that because no one has a legitimate interpretation aside from the ruler. So it doesn't really avoid, if you will, um, absolute power and tyranny. Rutherford says that a king can only claim a right to absolute interpretation if he has absolute power. And the ruler has a limited power to interpret the law. He doesn't have unlimited power. And Darius is a good example of this because King Darius in the book of Daniel gave a law. Basically, everyone has to pray to him for 30 days. And he was reminded by his counselors of what the law required. He was also reminded of the law of the Medes and the Persians that basically restricted Darius and he couldn't unmake his law. He couldn't get out of it. And even though Darius tried and and spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to um, get Daniel to escape this law, how to make it fit so that Daniel would live, he couldn't do it. He was bound. He was bound by the law that he gave. So he gave the law, but was under the tradition of the Medes and the Persians, and his counselors made it clear to him that this is what the this is what you just said. This is what it means. You got to follow through with it. And Darius did, uh, but he didn't like doing it. So at the end of the day, the the will of the ruler must submit to the will of God. And Rutherford says this, which very I think these are very um, succinct and beautiful statements here. He says, "Quote: Things are just and good because God wills them to be so. Creatures, even the most eminent." can only will things that are good and just, as if by a reflection of the justice inherent to God's will. No creature can term something as good merely because it says so. There are no rulers who possess absolute dominion over the law to the extent that they can proclaim a bad law good or an unjust law just. End quote. So again, no one has the power to basically flip a law on its head. And say, oh, well, the law says this, but I think it says the opposite. And just flip it. No one has the power to do that. And no no creature can simply declare something to be good just because he wants to. 
It's good because God says it is good. Now that's chapter 16. So moving to chapter 17, and this is where we get into the issue of resistance and violence. The question is, are defensive wars against political tyranny waged by the people and the representatives justifiable? Basically, can you resist? Can you use violence against a tyrant? Now, this is a uh, pretty relevant topic, I believe, in light of the recent uh, protests and ransacking of the Capitol uh, down in Washington, D.C. a few days ago. And I'll speak to that very briefly, but let's get through uh, this first because I want to show you how Rutherford navigates this topic. He first says this. He says, this question is not about whether you're overthrowing a ruler. That's not what we're talking about here. He's talking about defending yourself against a tyrant. And he says that the power to do evil is not an essential tool for a lawful ruler. In other words, we've, and we've covered this before, that a ruler does not have the power to do evil. I mean, yeah, he can do it, but he does not have the moral authority. That's not part of his job description. His job description is not, you may do evil against the people. No, when he's doing evil against the people, he is violating his job description. He's not doing his job. So, and Rutherford says, um, abuse of power is not from God, it's from Satan. And it is no sin for the people to restrict some power from the government. And he goes on to say that power that is in opposition to law is evil and tyrannical and can be resisted. So if the king is violating the law itself and is acting evil and tyrannical, he can be resisted. And Rutherford says this, quote, We are under no commandment to suffer the abuse of wicked men unless it is specifically for the name and honor of our Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. Now that's an important point because he makes a distinction between being targeted as a Christ follower and being um, hit with oppression that's political and not really um, has anything to do with your faith. So he says, basically, I mean, unless you are suffering specifically for the name and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't need to suffer that abuse, okay? Now, he'll go on to also talk about uh, a different kind of abuse as well, whether it's you're being abused as an individual or your family or those under you, those under your care are being abused. And he gives this example. He says, um, you as a husband or a father, you do not have the right to give your wife and children over to be tortured and killed. So it's one thing for the government to come and arrest you, whether that's for because you're a Christian or whether it's because you just broke the law. Uh, certainly, if, if they're arresting you because you're a Christian, um, I think it, you know, I think Rutherford's arguing you should uh, you should suffer those consequences. It's a, it's a glory because it's being done in the name of Christ. But if they're coming for your wife and children and not for you, um, even if they're doing it in, because they want to persecute Christians, as a father, because you are the covenant head of your family and, and they're under your care, you don't have the authority to essentially throw them under the bus or throw them to the wolves and say, oh, it's okay, they're suffering for Christ, so I will let them suffer. No, that's not what leaders do, and that's not what those who are responsible do. You need to step in, protect them, and defend them. Now, going back to as individuals, 
um, who want to defend themselves. Rutherford gives the example, again, of the family. If a father is an abusive father and attempts to murder his children, his children have a right to resist him. They can bite, they can scream, they can kick, and they can run. Anything that they can do to to save their lives uh, and to spare them from being murdered. The mother also has a right to interfere and stop the husband uh, and the father from doing that wicked thing. What's interesting is that in that situation, they're not acting to remove him from the position of father. They're not saying that fathers are bad. They're not, they're not trying to destroy the idea of father or the position of father. And they're not trying to even get a new father or remove the man from the role of father. Interestingly, the father did that himself. He removed himself from the role of father the moment he decided to murder his children. So they're not, so they're not violating God's law. They are fully um, authorized to resist a tyrannical father to save their lives. It's not a sinful thing. And Rutherford says this, he says, quote, Those who resist the tyranny of a ruler resist no ordinance of God. They resist the Lord's deputy who has negated the honor and duty of his office, end quote. So basically, and put it simply, one could say um, they are not resisting uh, God's law. They are resisting the person, and they are the ones. That person, that tyrant, that ruler is breaking God's law. That ruler has deviated from their job description. And I always like this example because I think uh, the example of, uh, of Queen Athalia in the book of Kings is a, is a good one. Because she usurped the throne of Israel, and she ruled for, I believe, six years. But she was not the legitimate and lawful ruler. And even after six years of rule, when the priests and the captains decide to um, put Joash on the throne and overthrow her, when they go to arrest her, she's the one screaming, treason, treason, treason. She is accusing them of treason. And of course, that's what all tyrants do. All tyrants, no no tyrant is going to say, oh, yeah, you caught me. Yeah, yeah you're, you're right to resist. Uh, I was just waiting for someone to do that. No, a tyrant's going to basically say that the persons resisting are rebels. They are committing treason. They are the ones that are wrong. But the fact is, no. In, in Queen Athalia's case, she was the one that was in the wrong. She had over, overtaken the throne and tried to put to death the entire royal family, including all the children. So she's the one that was the usurper, and she committed treason first. The captains and the priests, um, they're doing the right thing. And even though she calls it treason and screams treason, it's not. She's the one that's in violation of God's rule and God's ordinance. So at the end of the day, the purpose of government is to provide for the peace and safety of the community so that the people may lead a peaceful and quiet life. If God never allowed for people to resist a tyrannical ruler, then rulers would have the power to kill everyone in their country, and no one would be able to resist that. So we have to always remember that rulers come from the people and serve the people, even though they are ordained by God. And Rutherford says this, he says, quote, if the people and their representatives delegate their power to a ruler for their own good, then 
they have the power to judge for themselves when that power opposes them. Consequently, they have the power to limit and resist the power they have given and take it away. End quote. So this leads me to mention a few things of what happened in Washington. Because the argument is, well, that the mob, the people, quote-unquote the people in Washington, were exercising that authority. They were taking back their authority from tyrants who were oppressing them and stealing the election. And that is not what I would say is happening. And that is not what Rutherford would agree with. When Rutherford talks about the people, he mentioned in the very beginning at that question, the people and the representatives. He's not speaking of the mob. And and we got to be very careful about that because the term the people can be easily redefined. You know, Karl Marx used to talk about the people. And a lot of revolutionaries talk about the people. And it's a very nebulous term. Who is the people? How do you know what the people believe? And later on, we'll go into this. Uh, Rutherford says that the people speak through their representatives. That's how you understand where, um, that's how you define people. And that's why later on in the book, he'll go into, well, who's allowed to wage the war? Who's allowed to do the fighting? And it's not the mob. It's not the common citizen um, without any authority. The lesser civil magistrates, the representatives of the people, they're the ones that have to lead and organize the resistance against the tyrant. Um, it is not to be a disorganized, chaotic mob. That is not how it works. Um, it's to be orderly and done uh, with good conduct under the leadership of representatives of the people. And that's why lesser magistrates are so important because that's the role that they that they serve. So Rutherford would not have approved of what happened in Washington. That was a mob mentality. It was done emotionally. Um, it was not done with peace and patience and self-control. And it was not led by lesser magistrates who uh, have been trying to do the right thing and, and, and were basically taking the next step. That's not at all what was happening. And, and Rutherford would have condemned what had happened in Washington. And, and I do too. I don't think it was, uh, it was not good in any way. It was not good. Um, I'm not a big fan of mobs. <laughs> mobs act on emotion and in the spur of the moment. And um, it, nothing good can come from that. Uh, whether it's a temper tantrum on the right or the left, temper tantrums are temper tantrums and uh, need to be dealt with accordingly. So uh, with that, I hope that you found this episode to be a blessing, useful to you. Again, I encourage you to pick up Lex Rex, take a look at it. We'll cover uh, the next couple chapters next time. And until next time, take care and...